Let's look to Hebrews chapter 13. We come to the close of this series through this great book of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 13. I ask if you would to read in unison with me, all reading together at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 18. Hebrews 13, so we'll read together in unison from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 13, reading together, verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for written to you briefly, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. We ask, Lord, that as we come to this end of this final chapter of Hebrews, that we would feed upon it, that you would continue to grow us and mature us in our understanding of Scripture as your people. I pray indeed not merely for this time together, but as we think of the past months that we have spent in this book, I pray that the sanctifying effect would be rich and eternal. I pray that you would keep us in the faith, and for those who know not Christ, that you draw them to yourself. And Lord, as we finish out uh, this book today, I pray that you'd meet with us here and help us to see what we should as we conclude. We are thankful that you've given us life and opportunity through these days to search the scriptures together. And I pray that you'd continue to reward that effort as we talk together, many of us today and Uh, smaller groups about what you've accomplished through the series. Lord, here today again, we pray that you would guide and open our eyes to the truth of your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The author of Hebrews joined us here today. He might say something like this as we conclude our journey through this book, and I certainly don't mean to speak for him, but just to think of where we've been and what the point has been to this point. He might say, your relationship to the risen, reigning Christ is the most defining factor in your life. And it will be for all eternity, no matter who you are. Jesus, 1.10, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of His hands. 1-3, Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 9, His throne stands forever and He rules with the scepter of uprightness. Chapter 12 and verse 29, all who remain unreconciled to Him will learn that Christ is a consuming fire. In 10-31, they will discover 
that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Our only hope in life and death is to turn from sin and to trust the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. And the most disastrous error that any unbeliever can make is to reject the living Christ. The most disastrous error a professing believer can make is to fall away from that profession, to fall away from the living Savior. So we must acknowledge as a church, as individuals walking in the light of the Scriptures and Christ today, that we are capable of making godless, disastrous life choices. But the ultimate failure we are capable of committing in this life is to renounce our faith in Christ. The author of Hebrews believes this with all of his heart, so he labors with skillful zeal to exhort us through the Holy Spirit to never fall away from the living God. Salvation from the just judgment of our sin is a finished work of Christ. And in His grace, in this grace, we rest. Yet it is the kind of rest that perseveres in believing faith until we meet Christ in eternity. This is its nature. And this the author of Hebrews has pressed upon us. As he says here, take care then, brothers. That is the Christian family. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. They're walking in fellowship with the congregation, but there is a concern that one would fall away from that walk. And so... In opposition to that, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The temptations of this world, and particularly for these individuals under the pressures of the world to renounce their faith, the deceitfulness of sin can step in and lure us away from an active faith in Christ. Work with one another, he says. Encourage each other that this not happen, for we have come to share in Christ. We are one and united with Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we do not, it is evidence that we are not in Christ. But I am confident that you are, and so I encourage you to build one another up in that faith to hold the original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when Israel did in her rebellion. So the author invests much of the rest of the book defending the conviction that abandoning Christ is spiritual suicide. And why is that the case? Because Jesus is the great high priest. He is appointed by God after the order of Melchizedek to assume human flesh, and so to die is the final sacrifice for sin, the righteous dying in the place of the unrighteous, as we've sung this morning. Jesus' death paid the judgment price for our sins, establishing a new covenant by which our sins are now forgiven on the basis of His final shed blood. We enter then into joyful fellowship with God by grace alone. Jesus' lifeblood sealed that new covenant, of which He is now the mediator between 
God and man. And all who enter this new covenant through faith in Christ enjoy His high priestly intercession and receive Christ's unshakable kingdom. We are indeed receiving that kingdom. And it will never be taken away. It will never be shaken. So now believing these revealed truths inevitably binds people together in close communion. I'm certain that all of the classes that have met in the hour before, and certainly as we have just reviewed these truths together, we recognize how this sets us apart from the world in which we live. These are radical ideas. These are concepts that come only by revelation from the Lord. And as we come to faith in them, it binds us together. It unites us around these ideas. So on one hand, there is the willingness to exercise watch care over one another, lest we fall away from the truths that God has revealed. And on the other hand, there is a unity of fellowship as we persevere in the faith and serve Christ together. We are in this as the body of Christ to the very end, until we enter into eternity where there will be no more temptation to fall away. So as the author signs off, I'd just like to draw out three interrelated features of a church's community in Christ as they kind of come to the surface. In some sense, outlining these last verses is difficult and unnecessary. We see the outlining here that we have probably in our text of Scripture, a benediction and final greetings and the like. But I want to just draw out three themes that we see. Beginning at verse 18, we see a community of prayer. As we come to belief in these ideas, as we help each other endure in the faith, we form a community of prayer. And that just comes out very naturally here in verse 18. As he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring or probably a better translation, is determined to act honorably in all things. Pray for us. That may link up with verse 17. Obey your leaders. Follow them. And pray for them. Pray for me. The author has a clear conscience, we see here in verse 18, knowing his own heart determination to act honorably in all things. I think it probably means two things. First of all, he has written frankly and faithfully to them about the utter necessity of not turning away from Christ and of the concern and danger if they do. And so I think he says with clear conscience, I've told you the truth. I've called you to enduring faith. Don't turn in light of persecution away from Christ. Don't go back to life under the old covenant. I have a clear conscience that I've made this very clear. Has he not? We think of chapter 6 and we think of chapter 10 as some of the most direct and difficult statements of Scripture by way of warning. But perhaps secondly, he also speaks here of a clear conscience, saying that he seeks their prayers that he might discern any reason to confess sin. He has a clear conscience. He also has a tender conscience. He humbly asked them to pray that he would remain above reproach as he serves Christ. Indeed, he wants to continue ministering to them, verse 19. So says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this. That is, I'm filled with concern that you would keep praying for me in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
It's a bit tantalizing. We don't know anything else. We don't know where he is or why he's not with them, but uh, he doesn't even sign his name to this book, which causes us all kinds of consternation and interest and intrigue, but they knew exactly who he was. He had ministered among them, and he wanted to be restored to them. Where is he? We don't know. They know, and that's all that matters. But they are now under severe persecution, severe pressure at least, to turn away from Christ, and the author longs to provide that spiritual aid which has bound them together in the past, and he hopes will bind them together again in the near future. So pray for me. Pray for me as I'm praying for you. So our circumstances certainly differ, but we are reminded here that Jesus desires every church for which he died to be a praying church. Prayer, we are called to a life of prayer. And one of the chief means of helping your fellow church members persevere in the faith is to pray for them. It's as obvious as can be, but yet we often fail to do it. And maybe fail at times to see that prayer is more than just asking God to come to the aid to help someone in the moment, someone who's struggling financially with a difficulty, with, with disease or uh, some other need, but also to pray for their faith, to pray that we would persevere in the faith for one another. We are to be an assembly that does this. Prayer also for leaders of the church in whatever capacity we find them but to systematically be praying for one another that we would be faithful to Christ. And pray that God will pour out upon this assembly all the good that He can, all the good that could result from His grace upon us. Negatively, may we pray, particularly for leadership, that God would preserve us from the harm and destruction that can come from moral failure. We're to be a praying assembly for one another to say, God, allow nothing to destroy the sweet unity and the fidelity to Christ. May we gather together as a church. May we be led by individuals who have a clear conscience. That's a work of spiritual endeavor that we must take up as we pray for each other. Verses 20 and 21 form a benediction, a prayerful pastoral blessing extended to the um, assembly. And it's, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful words that are put together here. But we see a community of prayer, and what rises here now is a community of faith, a community of shared faith in Christ. Verse 20 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. That's where he's aiming at verse 21, is that, that God would equip them. But notice the source and the means of that equipping that we find here in verse 20. I want to draw out four themes that would be shared uh, points of faith that we have as an assembly and wonderful truths that are connected to them. The first is peace. May the God of peace. This peace finds its source in God and is extended to us in Christ. 
Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We gather together as a church that is at peace with God. And it is a wonder. The peace of God is the prosperity of soul that God extends to those who are forgiven and reconciled to Him by Christ's death and resurrection. It probably reflects that Hebrew word shalom. For all to be right, even when everything around is broken. That inside, because of our relationship with God, there is this sense of peace. I am reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. There is peace. And as such, the Lord yearns for our spiritual prosperity as our Heavenly Father. He rejoices to rain down His goodness upon our lives. Ultimate goodness. Not simply health, wealth, and ease. But whatever is going on around that there is peace in the midst of the storm, that is so much more valuable. Puritan William Gouge reflected this peace in the midst of a world filled with troubles and trials and a man who suffered those trials and knew what it was to cry. Heartache. But he said this, listen to this, listen to the peace in the midst of the storm. He said, well, yet in all these trials, there is nothing of hell. There is nothing of hell or of God's wrath. Thou hast deserved much more. It is enough that thou art kept out of hell. This is the spirit of peace. Bring on what may. Jesus has already stood in my place to pay the ultimate suffering, to pay the ultimate cost. I am at peace with God through Christ. That is invaluable. Secondly, resurrection. We are a people at peace with God. But he then invokes the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Everything hinges on the resurrection of our Lord. Without His resurrection, His sacrifice would have meant nothing. Without His resurrection, our faith would be in vain. But we serve the risen Christ. And on this doctrine, we base utterly everything that we believe as God's people. Everything that we do as His people, it all rests on the fact that Christ lives. He is risen He is risen indeed. This is our confession in life and death. To this we cling. The peace that we have with God. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, that He is the great shepherd of the sheep. That He is our shepherd. The risen Christ is no distant potentate who left us so so as to improve His conditions. He is the shepherd who protects, who heals, who nourishes and leads His people. We read it this, this morning earlier. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So there are sheep in the fold for whom he has laid down his life, who he, whom he is protecting. But there are other sheep who will join. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Shepherd or sheep, rather, are defenseless creatures. Even though, as Rocky mentioned this morning, we don't live around sheep, we know pretty well, just picture it, there's a field that's lined by a wood, woods, and there's a small flock of sheep grazing on that field. And out of the woods bolts a pack of wolves. Anybody not know what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, it, they cannot outrun these wolves. They cannot make noises enough to scare them off. They cannot bite and kill them. They can't, they're, they're absolutely useless standing there in their own power. And this is one of those blessed truths we come to as believers in Christ. We're those sheep. We cannot stand against the onslaught of Satan in our own strength. We cannot stand against sin. We cannot stand against the persecutions of this world. We can't do it. We're not going to run away. We're not going to fight it off in our own strength. But we have a great shepherd. And that shepherd will protect us and has protected us with the cost of his own life. And now, as our risen shepherd puts a hedge of protection around us and leads us and nourishes and directs and sustains and feeds us. Oh, Christian, how rich we are to have a great shepherd. We walk around people every day who have no such shepherd. May we not forget. Number four, the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant, by the death of Jesus Christ, inaugurating that covenant. Here again, reference to the new covenant, inaugurated by that death of Christ in the place of sinners as the final and complete sacrifice for sins. So by Christ's death, we are freed to fellowship with God and nothing will ever cancel this covenant. It is eternal in its effects. Peace, resurrection, shepherd, eternal covenant. This is our faith. And by this faith, through these means, then, he comes in verse 21 to this, to say of them, may God, this God, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. May He equip you with everything good that you may do His will. This word equip means to supply what is lacking, to amend what is faulty, and so to enable one to fulfill a calling or complete a task. So the prayer is that God would fix us, that He would reconstitute us, that He would transform us so that we are equipped to do His will. The most natural and the most destructive mission in life is to, to, to determine to do what I want to do. That I will do my will. And I'm going to decide for myself what is right and wrong. God created us to find our joy and purpose in doing His will. Not my will against His, but synchronizing my will to his. 
This is not because God is a petty, small-minded God who manipulates us so that he can get his selfish way. Rather, God designed us to know our greatest joy and our greatest capacities by the calibration of our heart desires to His. His will, like the two tracks for a train. Put the train on those tracks and it hums happily forward. Get off those tracks and it's a derailment. Sin always pits us against God's will and always corrupts and shrivels our souls. Obedience to God's will always results in peace. So may this God, whom we believe in this way, verse 20, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. And that He then, we see there secondly, verse 21, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That He is at work within us. We are called to obey God, but it is His power working in us that equips us to do so. We will glory in eternity, not in our power to do good, but in God's gracious provision of the divine power that worked within us. So that in the end it is this, to Him be glory forever and ever. That's the point. As the Apostle Paul put it to the Philippians this way, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is indeed a message that we are to gain from the book of Hebrews, that we are to work out our salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Coming together here, the divine supply and the human imperative the responsibility to walk in fellowship with God who empowers us to do what is right. We actively, knowingly obey as He empowers us to do so, so that in the end, always He is glorified. Always He is honored. I think Philip Hughes captures the essence of this whole point, this this convergence of the human responsibility and the divine supply, when he says this, there is by no means the eclipse of the human will. That the the human will is, is put down or minimized. But on the contrary, it's fullness and it's perfection. That is, we exercise our will in doing good in a way that is complete, perfected, mature. It's very fully engaged. The Christian service of God, therefore, is not passive submission, but willing, joyful, and cooperative obedience. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, he would say it is passive submission in certain situations, in a certain sense of the word. They say it's not sitting back and waiting for God to hit us on the head with a wand. It is active obedience with our will wholly engaged as God changes us to want what He wants. Thus the lifeline which connects the creature to the Creator and His eternal purposes is restored. We become the people He created us to become. We, with our, if our life is the train, we run on the tracks faster and faster and with greater and greater joy. Because we realize this is where joy is found. To follow His will. 
A community of prayer, a community of faith, and a community of mission. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The word of exhortation is a reference to this book, and it reminds us that the book is something of a written sermon. I could have, it, 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 this book could, you could read this book in about an hour. And that very likely is what took place as the assembly came together, and this was delivered apparently not to the leadership of the church, but to some individuals within the church. Getting together, they probably listened to this message for in the, in the range of an hour or so, depending on how they did it. And so it would have served very well as a written sermon in that gathering. And I think, just I, you'd love to go back to that point when this book was read for the first time. In the eloquence of the Greek, which is, is off the charts, in the depth of its theological wisdom, we've been soaking in it and striving to understand it, in, in its breathtaking exaltation of Christ, I suspect the assembly sat for a while in stunned silence as they tried to grasp what they had just heard. This is my brief exhortation. Hear it. Endure it. Learn from it. Verse 23, you should know also that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. I'm sending you my word to build you up in the faith. If possible, I'll be joined by one of our colleagues and I will meet you there with him to continue to build you up in the faith. And, and please know, rejoice, he's been released. We don't know what that means, but almost certainly released from prison. And he hopes that Timothy will join him wherever he is and that they together will come and continue to minister to this group of believers. We see the mission it's just natural. I mean, it's not explained here. It just comes to the surface. And then with that, he says, verse 24, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. We could translate the Italians send you greetings, which means nothing to us because they could be in Italy or they could be out of Italy. We, we don't know what that means, but they did. And the greetings are sent. On one level, that's just a routine greeting, as a letter might provide. And yet I think these greetings of Scripture breathe the spirit of the camaraderie of the early church. To greet someone, in the best sense of the word, is to extend love to them. To greet someone is to receive them, to say, you matter to me. Or at least it should mean that. And we know that experience. You extend a greeting to someone and they just ignore you. Or grump or something. It doesn't, doesn't exude love. We just know that these believers cared for one another as they greeted each other, and it reminds us of the fellowship of faith the church enjoyed with the saints of old. Chapter 11, and with the saints alive. Here in chapter 13. Grace be with all of you, he ends the book. Every truth, every exhortation found in this book is grace from God. What we deserve for our sin, 
is judgment. What we deserve is to fall into the fearful hands of the living God. We offend His name by our many sins. We usurp His place in our own affections. We place our will above His. And we deserve His consuming fire for all of this. But what we get is grace. The undeserved, unearned, kind, loving, goodness, and warm reception of our God. That's what we get in Christ. And this grace, of course, is not cheap grace. It's purchased by the shed blood of our Savior. It is a grace that flows from His eternal throne as living water to all who will drink of it. But it was purchased by His blood. And if you have not embraced Christ as your Savior and come to know the joy of doing His will, I appeal to the words of 1225, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. He is speaking. He is making clear His salvation plan. Do not refuse that voice. Chapter 3 and verse 8, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And for those who know Christ, chapter 10 and verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, remembering that He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So grace be with all of you. Let's stand together. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace be with you all.